right, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3? Revelation, chapter 3. You're all familiar faces, so I don't have to review too much. Okay. Uh, we are currently in the second major section of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, which contain the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And last week we finished chapter 2, looking at the letter to the church of Thyatira, the idolatrous church. That brings us to chapter 3 and the letter to the church of Sardis, the dead church. So let's jump in. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel, and that would be the senior or lead pastor, but to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Let's first of all look at the city of Sardis before we jump in uh, any further. Uh, the city of Sardis uh, was inland about 50 miles east of Ephesus. And at one time it had been the capital of Lydia, which was the province it was located in, and was one of the oldest and most important cities of Asia Minor. Now, you have to see the geography in your mind's eye because it really feeds into this thing. It was built on an elevated plateau, which rose rather dramatically, 1,500 feet above the Hermes Valley. On three sides of this plateau, the rock walls rose straight up, 90 degrees, and they were very smooth. Uh, they were absolutely unscalable. The remaining side was a very steep slope that consisted of many jagged rocks, so steep that and treacherous that the people of Sardis considered their city to be impregnable, unconquerable. They really believed that no invading army could ever take the city, except it fell twice to enemy armies, uh, the first time by Cyrus of Persia in 549 B.C. Cyrus and his soldiers had surrounded the city only to realize it did seem impossible to take. Uh, after two weeks of trying, Cyrus offered a special reward to any of his soldiers that could find a way into the city. Well, one day, one of his soldiers happened to notice a soldier up on the wall of the city of Sardis, how he dropped his helmet down this very steep slope of that plateau the city was built on. And, uh, you know, thought, well, he's lost his helmet. Uh, but later on that afternoon, he saw the same soldier kind of appear down at the base of this slope, retrieve his helmet, and kind of disappear. And after I don't know how long, he looks and there he's up on top of the plateau again. So obviously, he was using some kind of a path or passageway that could be used to climb up into the city and then down from the city. So he said, okay, all right. So that night he gathered some of his buddies. And it was a treacherous climb, so these were uh, young men who were very fit. But he took a few guys and found that passageway. It was kind of a hidden uh, crevice. Uh, in the mountain plateau, and they were able to uh, make their way up through it, uh, climbing up into the city. And when they got into the city, to their amazement, they discovered that the whole city was sleeping. There wasn't even any sentries on duty. 
All right? Interesting. Apparently, they, people of uh, Sardis felt so confident that their city was impregnable and unconquerable that they let their guard down. And everyone went to sleep, and the city fell. 549 B.C. The city fell again in 218 B.C. when Antiochus, after a whole year of trying to find a way to defeat the city, one of his soldiers happened to find that very same little secret pathway into the city, and he too led a group of men at night, keep that in mind, at night, um, up this treacherous little path, and they made their way into the city, and once again, everyone was asleep. The city was left unguarded. Apparently, the people of Sardis had forgotten their lesson. There was no one watching the city, no one guarding it, and once again, Sardis fell because the people of Sardis were overconfident and apathetic. After this, a saying began to go around that Sardis was a city that was taken as a thief in the night. Jesus picks up on their history and uses it to warn the church in Sardis that if they do not watch for his return and repent of their carnality, of their apathy and overconfidence, uh, along with that, he would come upon them as a thief, verse 3, catching them off guard and he would judge them. Well, in 17 A.D., Sardis was completely destroyed by an earthquake, but was eventually rebuilt by Tiberius, Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. But this time, not on top of the plateau, uh, Tiberius had the city built at the bottom of the mountain. Now, that was where five um, trade routes intersected. And consequently, the city became extremely wealthy. As it went on to become the center of the carpet and wool industry, it became a textile town, very wealthy. Something else I thought was interesting, and it does play in again to the whole letter here, and that was that Sardis was called a cemetery of a thousand hills. Because seven miles away, you could see this huge acropolis that rose above the city, on top of which stood the temple of Sibylle. Now, Sibylle was just another name for Diana. Of course, you remember that the Ephesians worshipped this goddess named Diana, but she was worshipped by other cities and cultures. They each had a name for her. She went by the name Isis, Venus, Semiramis, and so on. She was a fertility goddess, all right? But here in Sardis, uh, she was worshipped as Sibylle, and so on the top of the Acropolis was this temple to her, but also there was this cemetery with hundreds of mounds filled with tombstones that you could see from miles away. So you might say that death was a way of life in Sardis. In fact, the city came to be associated with death because of this very thing. It was identified with death. And so Jesus, drawing on this background, says to the church uh, there that they were also dead. He said in verse 1, you have a name but are dead. Here was a church filled with people who claimed to be alive spiritually, but were actually dead. This church was populated by this time, when Jesus dictated this letter to John. This church was populated with religious unbelievers, and um, 
people that had a form of godliness. In fact, that's what Paul, uh, you remember how Paul indicted churchgoers like this when he said, you know, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, okay? Um, you know, they look like Christians, but there's something wrong here. He said they profess to know God, uh, but in works. In other words, uh, by the works of their lives or the way they are living, they deny knowing God. They profess faith in God, in Jesus, but their lives don't reflect uh, that they're born again. There's no fruit. And of course, uh, we know that what Jesus said, that uh, many will call him Lord, Lord, okay? Uh, and yet don't do the things that he has told them. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I've told you? I mean, professions are worthless. If it's genuine faith in your heart, it's going to manifest itself in a changed or a transformed life. And so, uh, you know, Lord, Lord, but don't do the things he tells them because they aren't born of the Spirit. Now, by the time Jesus dictated this letter to the church of Sardis, listen, the city was wealthy but degenerate. Wealthy but degenerate. Historians have said that at any given time, a person could walk into the city back then at any point of entrance into the city and could hear people talking about its past glory. The people sat around, and they seemed to love to do this, the people sat around all day long uh, talking about the past glory of the city. But there was no life there. It was all what was going on in the past. Nothing was happening in the present, right? And the city had become just a corpse of its former self. And sadly, it seems that the Christian church followed suit and had also lost its life and vitality and, and vitality and had become a dead church. We talked about last week that the church is not a dead organization. It's a living organism. And uh, this church was just a dead church and was no longer a living church. All they did was talk about their past glory, how great, uh, you know, they used to be for God. Uh, be careful, you know. Um, there are people that are always talking about how they served God in the past and various glorious things God did in and through them. But there's nothing going on in the present. This was the church in Sardis. They were always talking about their past glory and how great uh, they had been used by God. But now, today, there was no present life. There was no present power. You know, I read about a, uh, a ship. This is going back a little over 100 years ago. And they uh, found a ship that was sailing in the Arctic Ocean. And after they boarded it, uh, they found that the captain and crew were still on board. They had all frozen to death. Many of the crew members had frozen to death in their hammocks. They found the captain slumped over his desk with a pen in hand, having made a final entry into his log. When the newspapers got a hold of this, they titled the whole thing, A Drifting Sepulcher Manned by a Frozen Crew. And when I saw that, I thought, I think that that describes many churches, all right, that once had life, that once were vibrant and powerful and used by God, but today they are nothing more than drifting sepulchers manned by frozen crews. You know, 
there are many churches that are on fire. Praise God. But then there are many churches that I think bear the title rightly, the frozen chosen. The frozen chosen. Um, there's no warmth. There's no fire. Uh, they're just, you know, they're just drifting. They're not really going anywhere. They're just drifting along, you know. And uh, they're still around, like Sardis was still a, still a church, but um, there's no life there. This church, guys, was not a sanctuary. It was a mortuary where dead people offered up dead worship to God. And Jesus here is acting like a divine coroner who is pronouncing this church dead. It has been noted that the progression of life with regard to a religious movement looks something like this. God raises up a man, and from that man he begins a movement. Eventually that man dies, and of course the movement, there's momentum, and so the movement continues forward. But eventually, and, and at that point, it becomes a monument. So God raises up a man and uses him to start a movement, but eventually that man dies. The momentum is still there, so now it moves into the monument phase. But eventually the momentum stops, and whatever life was there is gone. And now it becomes a memorial. Nothing more than a tombstone really marking a grave where there had been life at one time. We see this all the time in church history. Uh, you know, at one point, all of the major denominations happened to be uh, the revival, you know, where the Catholic Church had pretty much died. God reaches in and pulls out the faithful remnant and starts the Lutheran Church, you know, and he does that all, you know, reaches in, pulls out the faithful remnant, starts the Methodist Church, and, and, and so on. And eventually those things get going and they are really used by God, but they begin to slow. Their leaders, they maybe die and, and it moves from that, you know, that monument to that memorial period where it's, it's still there, but it's really like a tombstone marking where life had once been, but is no more. Sardis was already in that final stage. The church of Sardis symbolically represents that period of church history from the 16th through the 17th centuries, a period referred to as the Protestant Reformation period. Last week we studied the letter to the church of Thyatira, which we said represented the period of church history from 600 to 1500 A.D., a period called the Medieval Roman Catholic Church. If you weren't here last week, you might want to go online and listen to that because we spent a lot of time developing that. But uh, by this time, by this time, this Sardis period, uh, which symbolically represents the 16th and 17th centuries, by this time the papal system had become so corrupt that it was selling indulgences in order to finance a new church in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica. The Roman Catholic Church sold these indulgences indulgences to Roman Catholics whose loved ones had died as a way of lessening their time in purgatory or if you wanted to sin in other words if you wanted to have an affair you could buy an indulgence which was basically forgiveness in advance you could have your affair and you were already taken care of okay you were covered because you had already purchased your forgiveness in advance and we looked at all of that last week go online listen to that if you weren't here but the Roman Catholic Church was making a, making a fortune selling these indulgences. 
because of this and many other false doctrines and corrupt practices. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, a Catholic Augustinian monk uh, at one time, as he saw all this going on, he, he couldn't stand it any longer. And so on October 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 theses or 95 reforms on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, which officially launched the Protestant Reformation. Now, keep that in mind, because I think spiritually, or symbolically, I should say, uh, that becomes the background of this letter. But verse 1 again, Jesus said unto the angel of the church of Sardis, write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God. What in the world does that mean? The seven spirits of God? I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. Well, there is. Ephesians 4, verse 4 tells us that. Many other places we could look at. But look, there aren't seven Holy Spirits, but the number seven demonstrates fullness or completeness. Remember, we talked about seven being the number of completeness, right? And I believe what Jesus is saying here to this church, he is saying that this dead church needs an infusion of the fullness of the Holy Spirit who is life. And I am the one who is holding that fullness and wants to pour it out on this or on any other dead church. Jesus is the Lord of life, and he wants to give life where there is death. Sometimes physically, we're studying John 11. We saw that last Sunday with Lazarus, whom he raised physically from the dead. But he definitely wants to impart spiritual life to all those who are spiritually dead. Everyone. The invitation to have spiritual, eternal life has gone out into all the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish now, but have everlasting life. He's the Lord of life, and he wants to impart spiritual life to all who will come to him. But the, this is the, talking of the spirit, this, 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 this number seven, the number of completeness. This church was completely dead. They needed a complete infusion of the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. In both the Hebrew and Greek, these words can mean spirit, as I just said, but they can also be translated breath. In both languages, breath. The breath of God, guys, equals the life of God. Genesis 2, verse 7 God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the breath of God, and Adam became a living soul. And this church needed an infusion of the life of the Spirit. They didn't need any more gimmicks or programs, okay? We, we tend to think even as individual Christians, when our life seems, our Christian walk seems to be kind of dry, even dead, we need to, to bring it back to life ourselves. How do we do that? We, we engage in more activities, go to more Bible studies, right? Uh, more small group meetings and so on. Now, I'm not saying any of that's wrong, but that's not how you infuse revival into a, a person or a church. It's not by adding more activities, okay? But churches typically fall into that trap. Uh, Warren Worsby said, and I quote, all of, the, uh, all of the church's man-made programs can never bring life. Any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. And yet, how many churches have kind of turned into circuses? Wow, the entertainment, the craziness. Because in their minds, that's the spirit we're manifesting. And the spirit's going to breathe life into this place and so on and so forth. Uh, no, 
uh, not going to happen. The Wordsby says the church was born when the Spirit of God descended on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, and its life comes from the Holy Spirit, end quote. And of course, one of my favorite quotes by A.W. Tozer, he said, if you took the Holy Spirit out of the early church, 90% of what they were doing would have come to a halt. If you take the Holy Spirit out of the work of the church today, about 10% of what the church is doing would come to a stop, end quote. In other words, we're not depending on the Holy Spirit as we once were. Now, why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But I think that man's pride has gotten in there. And as long as man has got his uh, college degree, as long as a person has their, you know, theological degree they are qualified to be in ministry and they think they need nothing else the church of jesus christ in america has moved away for the most part from the power of the holy spirit to build god's church and has moved more towards man and reliance on man to do the work of god several years ago i heard of a church in the area it's about maybe an hour north of here uh, that borrowed they didn't have the money in the bank. They borrowed $150,000. They borrowed $150,000 to pay a secular consulting company to tell them how to make their church grow. Let that sink in for a minute. They borrowed $150,000 to give to a secular company to teach them how they could make their church grow. You say, what did this company tell them for that much money? Well, Basically, the advice was that they were to make the church so hip, relevant, positive, non-confrontational, and seeker-friendly that the world would feel right at home. The church at Sardis had become so much like the world, they could no longer confront the world. You know, guys, the church's power has always been in its differentness from the world. Whenever the church starts to try, starts trying to be like the world to reach the world, it's a disaster. Because how they start is they say, well, what is the world like? What do people, unsaved people like? Well, they like music and they like entertainment. And, they like it. and so the church incorporates that, you know, because we got to become hip. We got to become, you know, kind of like an entertainment thing. And people like to go to theater. They like to watch plays. And so we have to adopt all that. And that's how people are going to come in. The problem is the church will never be as good at being like the world as the world is. This is their wheelhouse. This is where they live. The church is never going to be able to imitate the world and do it as well as what the world does because that's who they are, okay? That's who they are. And uh, often it comes across like, you know, when the church likes to kind of copy Las Vegas in a sense, and some churches have the bingo downstairs and the Las Vegas night, which I totally am against, but, you know, um, does it ever rival, does it, Las Vegas ever get worried that they're going to lose business? It never rivals Vegas, right? It only comes across like a cheap, pathetic counterfeit, doesn't it? 
Years ago, I was on uh, vacation for a couple weeks, around the holidays, and I, I don't like to come to church, our church, because, you know, one of my pastors is teaching. I don't want them to be self-conscious. Here I am, you know, sitting there like I'm spying on them. So I tend to go to another church in the area. And I went to a, a church close to my uh, house, and, um, and they were trying to do the skit thing. And so they had four people up in front, and they, were, and they had their man manuscripts right in front of them. And they're each reading their lines. And I thought, if you're going to do it, man, put a little effort into it. Memorize your lines. Put a little passion. It was just very mechanical and rote. And I'm thinking, see, this is what you get when you try to be like the world to reach the world. The world goes, are you serious? Are you kidding me? They're not impressed. The power of the church has never been in its ability to copy the world. It's always been in its differentness from the world. The world goes, I got this already and much better than what you guys are doing. When I come to church, I want to have, get something I don't have. I want God. I want to know God. And that's through the teaching of God's word and, and, and being led into the presence of God through the worship of God's people. <laughs> um, but that's what happened. And this company gave this church advice that they thought would bring life to the church. It was a formula for death. Because that's what spiritual deadness is really all about. That's how you kill a church. What do you mean? Well, it's where a church becomes so much like the world, trying to reach the world, that the world floods in. The church is flooded with worldly people who feel, listen, right at home. You're trying to make, you got to make the world feel right at home. Well, okay, then churches do that. The world comes in, feels right at home. In fact, they feel so much at home, they keep coming until they outnumber the true Christians, right? Those that are born again, full of the Spirit. And because these worldly people want all kinds of goofy things to entertain themselves, true Spirit-filled Christians aren't going to stay, so they leave. They wind up pushing whatever life is there out. And now you got a dead church. When that happens, the church has to use man-made gimmicks and programs to try to build the church because the power of the Holy Spirit is no longer there. And guys, only the power of the Holy Spirit can breathe life into a church and build a church by taking those dead in trespasses and sins and making them alive in Christ. I know. I've had people say to me, because you look at these mega churches, right? And... Um, they're, they're so big, and they're growing, many of them, okay? And um, I've, I've heard what's being taught in many of these churches. I'm like, you know, this is not a true, um, you know, pres presentation of God's Word. It's watered down. It's uh, misapplied. It's man-centered and so on. And yet I've had people say to me, well, but they're growing. How can a church be dead if it's growing? Folks, even graveyards grow. That doesn't mean there's life there necessarily. You can have a lot of good programs, a lot of good gimmicks. You could be given free pizza and uh, soft drinks out uh, between services. I don't know what they're doing. There's a lot of reasons a church will grow other than they're being filled with the Holy Spirit and people are being drawn by God because there's life there. 
Only the power of the Holy Spirit can breathe life into a church and build a church by taking those who are dead in trespasses and sins and making them alive in Christ. You remember Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily those being saved. The Lord. The Lord did. A.W. Tozer said, and I quote, it is scarcely possible in most places today, what he was saying, to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. We've grown weary of God, okay? Uh, God is old news, okay? Uh, I want a church that's going to entertain me and things. I mean, singing songs and hearing a Bible study, uh, I, I, I want more than that. You know, they're bored with God is basically the idea. Tozer basically says that. It's, it's almost impossible to get people to come to church simply because they love God anymore. Uh, one can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with him. For they must be wooed to meetings with the, with the stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments, end quote. Well, again, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus also controls the seven stars. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 20, these are the messengers of the churches, probably referring to the pastors of these churches. Now, guys, let me just say this. It's, sometimes it's a pastor's fault that a church is dying. Sometimes it's a pastor's fault that a church is dying. What do I mean? Well, many pastors today no longer have confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit working through the teaching of God's Word to reach people, to transform lives, and to build the church. This was typified in what, listen, one leader of one of the largest denominations in the country had to say in addressing 40,000 delegates at a national convention for this denomination. Here's what this leader said, again, of one of the largest denominations in the country. He said that, in part, that, uh, he said that part of their purpose for gathering was to, and I'm quoting him, was to devise business methods by which the Holy Spirit of God could be regulated and made efficient, end quote. Look, I have a problem believing that any saved man filled with the Holy Spirit could have made such a ridiculous statement. In my mind, that was a worldly unsaved man masquerading as a saved spiritual man. To me, it's just another example of the blind leading the blind. As we see in so many last days churches today. Now at this point in these letters, Jesus usually offers a commendation. Praising each church for whatever good was going on in their church. But in this letter we find no such commendation. And instead we see the Lord Jesus move right into the condemnation. Look at the middle of verse 1. Jesus said, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. 
Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. You know, last week as we studied the letter to Thyatira, that was a messed up church. But at least they had a few good things Jesus could commend them for. But here there is a big blank spot where there should be a commendation because Jesus has nothing good to say about the church of Sardis, but simply starts condemning them for what was wrong with their church. Now, I bring this out because there's a lot of Protestants who look down on Roman Catholics for a lot of reasons. And certainly, as we studied last week, looking at the Roman Catholic Church, there's a lot of problems there, no doubt about it. But there are some good works, too. Not that that's going to save them. We talked about that. But you have Catholic charities. You have the Catholic Church uh, has started many hospitals and orphanages and many other things that have helped people over the years. I'm not putting that down. And Jesus said to them they had a lot of good works going on. Um, but there are Protestants who are very haughty. And they look down on Catholics, you know? Kind of like the Jews looked down on the Gentiles back in Jesus' day. The Jews believed that God only created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. And that's all Catholics were good for, many Protestants believe, to fuel the fires of hell. But here, after Jesus commended the church of Thyatira for some things, he has nothing good to say about Sardis, and this represents the Protestant church. Wow. Okay? Again, these are report cards. We each need to look into each one of these letters and see it, look, as, uh, look at them as a mirror reflecting back to us, are we guilty of these things? But there's a lot of proud, arrogant Christians who don't really evaluate themselves. Don't look honestly at them. They're very good at criticizing others, but they don't look at themselves honestly. Now, I see this with the Church of Sardis, you know, or, or uh, Protestantism in, in general. Now, Jesus is harsh with this church. He loves them, but he's harsh with them. And he rebukes this church. He condemns them. His condemnation of them was threefold. First of all, they were placing all their worth on their reputation. They were placing all their worth on their reputation. Again, Jesus said, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The word name in the Greek could be translated reputation. Reputation. Now look, the Protestant Reformation was a dynamic time where brave men took a stand for truth and many of them paid the ultimate price for their faith. I'm not putting that down at all. They deserve to be honored and respected. And I do. I do. But soon Protestantism became an empty shell, a body without a spirit, a dead movement. Oh, yes, there were certainly many men and women in Protestantism who loved the Lord, even as there are today. But there were many men and women in Protestantism who loved the Lord and were born of and filled with the Holy Spirit. But as a movement, much of the Protestant church was and is dead. And if you doubt that, all you have to do is look at the Protestant churches throughout Europe. In Europe, the Protestant church is so dead. 
that every year hundreds of Christian churches close and are sold, listen, to Muslims to be turned into mosques. Our family has a good friend. Her husband passed, but has a good friend named Mona. And Mona came over here to America from Norway when she was just a young woman. She met a man named Fred. They got married and uh, lived not far from my parents' house, and our families were very close. Well, about 10 years ago, Fred passed away, and uh, Mona got, you know, kind of homesick, and so she moved back to Norway, where she was still a citizen. And uh, she was talking to my mom on the phone one day, uh, you know, five years ago, I think it was, and uh, she was talking to my mom, telling her how so many Christian churches uh, have been turned into mosques. And my mom said, you know, as an evangelical Christian, Mona's not saved. Uh, yeah, I hope she is now, but she wasn't back then. My mom was. So my mom just blurted out, you know, as an evangelical, oh, that's a shame. And Mona said, well, why? Nobody's going to them anymore. Why not let the Muslims buy them and use them? See, in her mind, it was totally okay. But we as Christians go, wow, that's a shame that the church in Europe is so dead, nobody's going to church anymore. Churches are being sold by the hundreds and thousands to Muslim groups to start mosques. First one, I know your works, that you have a name. The word translated name in the Greek is anima. And yes, we said it could be translated reputation. But it's also the word we get our English word denomination from. Now let me just stop and say this. What a grand tradition those denominational churches have that can trace their beginnings back to the Protestant Reformation. And the people in those denominations are very proud of their name. And they constantly talk of the past glory of their heritage. Jesus is saying to them, I believe, I know your works. He's, he's not condemning them for their works. They were proud. The Protestant churches are proud of their beginnings. And they love to talk about their heritage. And Jesus, I believe, is, is saying, yeah, I know your works. I know you were. I know those things that defined you, your history, and your accomplishments that gave you that name in the first place. But you're living in the past, is the idea. There are a lot of churches that are living in the past. They're stuck in the 16th century. They're still singing songs from the 16th century. You say, is that wrong? Well, no. But what is God doing in your church or denomination today? is the question. The Bible says, sing to God a new song, not constantly an old worn-out hymn. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Look, I love the old hymns. And not all of them, but I do love many of them. They're powerful. They're packed with theology. Uh, I was reading about a pastor somewhere in some third-world country, and he couldn't get Bibles. Because they just didn't have the money. But he found a bunch of old hymnals. And they were so packed with theology, he would use them to teach his church about God. I don't know if you can do that today. Maybe, hopefully, with some of the new songs. But 
I love the old hymns. They're awesome. But, but don't you think God wants to do a new thing? I mean, in every generation where the Holy Spirit is moving, there's new life. And that new life gives birth to new songs of praise. I remember when the Jesus movement was going on in the 60s. Now, I wasn't there. I was too young, but I read about it after I got saved. And, of course, our testimony is Calvary Chapel was right there in the thick of it, right? And as these kids started getting saved, I mean, they were unchurched kids, okay? And uh, their, their parents had never taken them to church, really. Maybe some, but for the most part, they were just hippies living uh, for the moment, that kind of thing. And, and the Holy Spirit began to move, began to open their eyes. They began to get saved. Calvary Chapel was loaded with young people. And God began to give them new choruses, new praise songs. They were simple. They weren't loaded with theology. These kids didn't know much theology, okay? But there was a spirit there in these songs. I still remember them to this day and how anointed they were because these kids were singing from their hearts about what Jesus had done for them, how he had given them new life. It was incredible. But do you know that uh, mainline denominational churches back then condemned all that? Be they saw these choruses as nothing but man-centered junk. There's a well-known pastor. I'm not going to mention his name. I think he's a good man. But he's often a few things. And it wasn't that long ago that he made that very statement. That the, the choruses that came out of the Jesus movement were nothing but man-centered garbage. How sad that you as a man of God cannot look past your denominational baggage. That, that you can't see that these... Do you expect your three-year-old to act like your 23-year-old? You mainline denominations have been around forever. These kids just got saved. They got no church background. Can't they crawl and, 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 and all and be very simple in their faith for a while until God gets a hold of them? Which he did. Many are pastors today of churches of thousands and thousands of people. That's sad. And I hope we never go there. I hope that the Spirit of God starts getting poured out. And, and we see people coming in with purple hair and orange hair and tattoos everywhere and nose rings and, and body piercings everywhere we can see and, and all that we don't run the other way or we don't move to one side of the church, that we realize God's working. God's working, and that's the only thing that matters. But here's the church that had been around for a while and was apparently resting on their laurels, like many today. It's easy to rest on your laurels and point with pride to men like Luther and say, we're Lutherans. Or Calvin and say, we are Calvinists. Or Wesley and say, we are Methodists. Jesus said, I know your works that you have a name. They're very big on their name. I'll paraphrase. I know your works, that you have a name, that you think you're alive, but you are dead. Today, most traditional mainline Protestant churches like Lutherans, Presbyterians, not all, don't get me wrong, but I think many, maybe most, traditional mainline Protestant churches like Lutherans, Presbyterians, Wesleyans, Methodists, uh, congregationalists are championing every godless cause that the Bible comes against. Promoting homosexuality, backing gay marriage, 
uh, abortion rights, uh, environmental issues, and yet they no longer believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, the power of the Holy Spirit, and that in some churches that Jesus is really the only way to heaven. They have a name, and from the outside they seem alive. Some are even expanding their existing buildings, <laughs> not because they need more space to accommodate all the new people coming, because there's so much life there, but because they've adopted the mentality, if you build it, they will come. I know of one church here in the area, Lutheran Church. And at one time they had a really good pastor, and there was life there. The church was over a 1,000 people. And then the pastor left, and they got a new guy in or something. But the church had dwindled to like 300 people. And so their idea was, let's borrow some money and build onto the sanctuary. They didn't need a bigger sanctuary. Nobody was coming to the one they had. And when asked, well, why do you want to build onto the church when we have so few people coming? Because that will let the community know there's life here. Something's happening. Yeah, you're going farther into debt. That's what's happening. Because you're trying to breathe life into a church that's dead because the only life can come from the Holy Spirit. You kicked him out a long time ago. I mean, in many of these churches, people still come to Sunday service. I mean, that's, that's a given. Uh, you know, a lot of these denominational folks, they make Sundays their day with family, and they start with church. And so the churches are, you know, not as full as they used to be of these denominational Protestant churches. But um, people tend to go on Sunday morning. That's true. However, there's not many there for a midweek service. In fact, uh, many of these churches no longer have midweek services. If you drive by them, they are dark most of the week. Lights are off. Nothing's going on. And a lot of these churches, just you know, a few hours here and there and Sunday morning, and that's it. And it, it, these, in the meantime, these churches sit vacant most of the week. Prayer meetings, pretty much non-existent. There's no life of the Spirit, really. Years ago, my wife was asked to speak at one of these denominational churches. It was a women's luncheon, I believe, in the area. Somehow they got a hold of her name, and so they called her. And it was, again, a denominational church, a women's luncheon. And they asked her if she would speak uh, to the ladies at this luncheon. And she said, well, I, I'll speak if I can talk about Jesus. And so, really? Um we get back to you on that and then she said well what do your did your prior teach uh you know speakers speak of well one taught us how to organize our closets uh one i think taught us how to weave baskets this is what passes for church in many circles today they're dead they have a name doors are open lights are on at least sometime during the week but there's no life there. There's no life there. These are churches in name only. Jesus said, you have a name, you have a reputation, but you are dead. Guys, a sure sign of death is when a church worships its past. They wouldn't put it like this, but let me paraphrase what's really going on. They're really saying, look, no, move, no new move of the Spirit for us. We like doing it the way we've always done it. Stuck in the past, okay? Stuck in the past. They hold on to their traditions and the way they've always done things to a point where they're afraid of anything new. They're, they're afraid 
of letting the Spirit, you know, if they even understand who the Spirit is, into their church to do a new thing. They would rather be old, like an old wineskin, rigid, set in their ways, uh, as opposed to opening themselves up to anything, a new work of the Spirit. That terrifies them. We've already, always done it this way. This way we're always going to do it. They are content to live in the past and remember, quote-unquote, the good old days, but aren't looking for God to do a new or a great thing or a new thing today in their church. This church was content with its reputation and past glory, but was lacking in life and the power of the Holy Spirit, which they seemed absolutely fine with. There's a lot of churches that really don't wring their hands as to why, you know, things aren't changing or there's you know uh, yeah they want to see more people in because more people then give more money and they can fix things the church is falling apart usually but they're really okay with where they are spiritually in fact they don't think many of them don't think there's any problem at all and a lot of church uh, christians are drawn to these churches because they have a certain name lutheran or Methodist, or something. A lot of folks are drawn to these denominational churches. Years ago, I had a couple of guys visit the church on a Sunday morning, and I was in John's Gospel at that time, and we were in chapter 16, and I noticed that one of the guys didn't seem like he wanted to be there, uh, you know, And but, but you know, he, he went with his buddy, and they were from out of town. They were in town for some kind of a business thing, okay? So, but they came to church, and I, I got the impression that uh, the one guy, the buddy, uh, was a Calvary guy because he insisted we got to find a Calvary. The other guy was a Baptist. He said, no, 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 we, we got to go to a Baptist church. But his buddy went out and they dragged him to our church. And we just, you know, you guys, I just opened the word and teach it. And afterwards he came up to me, this Baptist guy, and said, you know what, I didn't want to come today. But when I heard the teaching of the word, it really ministered in my heart. And so I'm glad I came. Yeah, the word of God will do that. That's the only thing that will, you know, penetrate your heart and encourage you or give you hope or maybe even challenge you. But a lot of Christians are drawn to churches because of their name or their history instead of drawn to a church because the Holy Spirit is there doing something. People are getting saved. Maybe it's uncomfortable. I don't want to, I've grown up in church and I don't want to sit next to a guy with purple hair or tattoos all over well why not why not i'm uncomfortable well maybe that's the problem maybe you're too comfortable and god's trying to get you out of your comfort zone so first of all jesus condemns this church for placing all their worth on their reputation secondly he condemns them that even the things that were left were about to die. Verse 2, Jesus said, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Look, it is tragic that the very issues that the Reformation was built upon, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, etc., these incredible pillars the Reformation was built upon are dying today in Protestant denominations. Many already dead. 
In fact, in 1994, something very significant happened. Something so important that Dave Hunt, a premier apologist at the time who was now with the Lord, but was so important that Dave Hunt called it, and I'm quoting him, the most significant event in church history in the last 500 years, end quote, and caused him to write his book, A Woman Rides the Beast. What was it? It was when Protestants and Catholics came together and signed ECT, which means Evangelicals and Catholics Together, the Christian Mission in the Third Millennium. It was a document. This document states in part, and I'm quoting now, well, I'm paraphrasing, that the, that the Reformation went too far that evangelicals and Protestants need to stop evangelizing Roman Catholics because they're already our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're already saved. And we need to realize that and celebrate that we are all one big family in Christ, end quote. Now, folks, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And I know I wasn't saved. And for that matter, none of the Catholics I knew back then, whether they were family or Catholic friends, none of my acquaintances and family were saved. We were all Catholic. My wife's family, they're Catholic. They weren't saved. I think I'm on solid ground when I say that many of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church weren't saved. And thank God he sent someone to us all who shared the gospel with us that we could get saved. I mean, guys, this is nothing more than the ecumenism. What does that mean? It means a coming together, bringing people together in unity. This is nothing more than ecumenism that is characterizing the last day's church and preparing the apostate Christian church, those who profess to know God but are not born again, but go to Christian churches. This is the devil using ecumenism. This idea that unity is the most important thing. Well, when Jesus prayed the night before he went to the cross to his father, he did pray that his disciples would be one. But he said, make them one by your truth. Your word is truth. Truth has to always, unity has to always be based on God's truth. I can't have unity with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or any other cult member. I can only have spiritual unity and koinonia fellowship with another born-again believer. I can love unbelievers. I can reach out to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and love them and share the gospel with them, but I can't enter into you know where I'm fellowshipping with one of you maybe. But you're born again. I can have fellowship with you because we're one in Christ. But I can't do that with a JW or a Mormon or a Harry Krishna or somebody else. But the devil is working hard to bring about unity among all kinds of faiths. So we'll talk about that more, I believe, maybe next time. We'll get to it. I have some quotes that will shock you. But um, it's all being done to prepare people for the one world church that the Antichrist and the false prophet will eventually bring to the world. And what's better? I mean, isn't unity important? 
you got people thinking this, right? Unity is the most important thing. Doctrine, that divides. See? Your word is truth. Make them one according to your word. Your word is truth. Oh, no, no, no. Satan says, doctrine divides. See, we want to get rid of doctrine. Why? Because it's truth, and truth hinders lies. And that's the only way people will come together in unity is if they buy into lies. That's not what the Bible says about unity and so on. We talked about that. You know, Protestants weren't supposed to be evangelizing Roman Catholics after ECT, okay? After they signed this document, the idea was you weren't supposed to be evangelizing Roman Catholics anymore because they're already saved. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ was the idea. However, Roman Catholic Church didn't get the memo, I guess, because they stepped up evangeliz evangelization, quote-unquote, of Protestants calling it Evangelization 2000. As they try to bring all the separated brethren, all the separated brethren back to the mother church with their commercials come home. I went online and I checked out that very thing. They have a whole website. I'm not going to give it to you because I don't want people tuning into it. And basically, they said, we're, the, you know, we're the true church. We're the church that gave you the Bible. But this is going on and on and on. You know, If I didn't know any better, I'd run to join that church that sounded so good. But I know better. So Protestants weren't allowed. To, and by the way, I'm not a Protestant. Just so you, I don't know if I said that. I'm an evangelical Christian. The Protestant church does not reflect there's a lot of hang-ups, and we're going to talk about that just a second, but that next week, because we're pretty much done now. I'm not a Protestant. I am a I am a evangelical Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Okay. I don't like labels, but I I do know this. I was a Roman Catholic. I came out of the Catholic Church, and I became a born again evangelical Christian. Not a Protestant. Okay. But according to ECT, Protestants weren't allowed to evangelize Catholics anymore, but Catholics seemed to be certainly allowed to evangelize, quote-unquote, uh, Protestants. And um, look, let me just say this. Um, the ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, says that the Re Reformation went too far. But that is exactly the third thing that Jesus rebukes and condemns this church for. Their works were incomplete. Verse 2, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. The word perfect is a Greek word that means complete. But here Jesus says, I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Uh, or in other words, Jesus is telling this church that their works have not gone far enough. Well, what does that mean? Well, Look, the Protestant Reformation was needed. It was needed, but it wasn't complete. It didn't go far enough in purging the Protestant church from all the paganism that was rooted in the Roman Catholic Church. For example, it brought many of the pagan Babylonian practices that had infected the Catholic Church into the Protestant Church. Now, I'm going to be careful here because you realize that Constantine who was um, really technically the first pope, okay? 
He took for himself the title of Pontifex Maximus, okay? Uh, thought of himself as the vicar of Christ and was, uh, saw himself as the leader of the Christian church, okay? But uh, uh, Constantine um, realized that he wanted to bring um, the people in, you know, under his leadership because he was, uh, you know, an emperor and um, wanted to bring Christians and kind of pagans together. He realized that the most important thing to the pagans were their festivals. I mean, these people didn't work five and take two off and didn't go every so often have, uh, you know, a couple weeks vacation. They worked nonstop, seven days a week. The only thing they had to look forward to were their festivals. And Constantine, you know, he was pretty sharp. He thought, well, if I can Christianize the pagan festivals... That will bring unity between pagans and Christians. So he took Saturnalia, which was a, uh, a winter solstice festival, okay, which took place around December 21st through the 26th, uh, and really was, uh, was a festival that was um, uh, organized around the winter solstice and how the, the sunlight became uh, the least of all the year at this time. And they actually believed the sun god was dying. And so what they had to do was they wanted to help the sun god survive these short days of sunlight. So they would take a log and they would light it and burn it. It was called a eulog. And that's the Babylonian word for infant, okay? And it was thought because around December 25th, when the day started getting longer, the light and all, uh, the sun god was reborn. And they celebrated this with decorated evergreen trees and um, again, mistletoe, and I forgot some of it, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, but uh, a winter pagan festival, Saturnalia, which they made Christmas, the birth of Christ. In the spring, they celebrated the Feast of Ashtar, who, which was a fertility goddess, okay? And uh, they celebrated her feast with colored eggs, rabbits, because rabbits tend to be very prolific in the way they reproduce. And it was all about fertility. It was a fertility uh, uh, festival and so he made that uh, Easter uh, you know new life and uh, Jesus coming back from the dead that's a great time to put those two together and of course Lent the whole idea of Lent comes out of pagan Babylonianism uh, and I can't get into it right now because I don't remember all the details but it revolved around uh, Semiramis and her son Tammuz we talked about that last week and uh, how at one point um uh, you know, he was, uh, uh, became very ill, and she fasted for 40 days to, to, to heal him, I think is how it went. And, and, and so the church incorporated that into it, called it Lent. Now, look, I, I don't have a problem, and we, our family celebrates Christmas. We don't look at it as a pagan festival. We look at it as the birth of Christ. Easter, of course, we love to celebrate. And Lent, if you want to set some days aside uh, throughout the course of the year to just maybe not eat and draw close to God. I have no problem with that. But a lot of these things are rooted in paganism. And there's other things that the Protestant church didn't go far enough in purging itself of and kind of just incorporated some of these things that the Catholic church had embraced. And now the Protestant church took them in and embraced them as well. So Jesus said to this church, representing the Protestant Reformation, I know your works but they're incomplete. They didn't go far enough. Next week, guys, we will pick it up with verse 3 
and Jesus' correction. Condemnation, and then he moves into the correction. And there's still a lot more to learn. It's amazing. It's fascinating. So uh, God help us. We'll get back next week and look, starting at verse 3. Father, we thank you for this uh, time in your word, Lord. It just enriches us. It teaches us. And of course, Lord, it uh, shows us uh, the things that we need to stay away from. And um, give us grace not to ever fall back on our name. Uh, Lord forbid that Calvary Chapel would ever be a source of pride. We're Calvary Chapel churches. Lord, you don't want that. We are not Calvary Chapel churches or Lutheran churches or Methodist churches. We are Jesus Church. And give us grace to always remember that and to have unity with others in different denominations when it comes to our faith in you. But to stay away from groups, Lord, that um, are not one with you, that call themselves Christians, that we might love them and pray for them and witness to them, but never have unity with them because we can't. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.